Sir Ernest Shackleton. That name ring a bell? Yeah. 1914. He wanted to have an expedition that took a, a ship across the Antarctic Ocean. But he needed some folks to go along. He wanted a crew. So he put out an ad in a London newspaper. Here's how the ad was worded. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Sir Ernest Shackleton. You read that and you might say, who in the world would uh, answer an ad like that, right? Who in their right mind would sign up for that? But you know what? Plenty of people did. So many people, men and women, showed up that he had to turn many away. You look at it and say, after he listed all the risks and all the costs, <laughs> why did they come? Obviously, we can't interview those people, but I have a hunch, for, for some of them at least, is that they, they wanted something more. They wanted to be a part of something special. And they were willing to, to pay the cost, take the risk to do that. Jesus tells us in the Bible to count the cost of following him. Did you know that? He paints a picture like this in Luke 14. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Nobody in their right mind would do that. They'd make sure they had the budget it took to finish the building. If it's in New York City, you want to make sure you've got the budget to finish that whole skyscraper, not just half of it. Right? He says that's how it ought to be with discipleship. When you look at following me, count the cost. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a man I respect greatly that counted the cost. He grew up in Germany and then moved to America. Okay? In 1939, he willingly went back to Germany. He was a pastor, a theologian, became a spy for the right side. He went there to stand up against the evil that was Hitler in the mindless murdering of the Jews. He left America to go there. Because of his stand in 1945, he lost his own life in a concentration camp. He counted the cost. So when Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about discipleship and following Jesus, he wrote a book about it called The Cost of Discipleship. When he talks about what he calls costly grace... I listen, okay, because I know this is a man who's not just spewing hot air. He lived it. And here's what he wrote about costly grace. First, he talks about cheap grace. He says, cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has 
It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his own son too dear a price to pay for your life, but delivered him up. It is only because he became like us that we can become like him. See, in our world, there are some extremes. Cheap grace acts as though, hey, God forgives everyone just because that's what God does. And I'm glad I got it, but it's not going to change my life at all. I'm good. Legalism is the opposite extreme that says somehow I can do something to earn God's favor. Costly grace is what is biblical. God's grace came at a great price. The price of his own son. When I receive that forgiveness that is a complete gift by grace through faith, my life ought to change dramatically because I want to live my life to say thank you, Jesus. I want to obey you. I want to walk with you. That's costly grace. So what is the cost of following Jesus? If we're supposed to count the cost, he said it plainly in our message a couple weeks ago, Luke 9.23, he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. It's the cost of walking with Jesus. Penn Clark asked the question, how does this line up with many of the preachers we hear today that say things like this? If you become a believer, your life will become easier. All your problems will go away and you'll become healthy and wealthy as long as you live. Princess Bride Wesley said to Buttercup, Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who tells you different is selling something. Remember that one? See, the real question is not will you have trials. There will be trials in this world. Jesus promised it. The question is, will you go through the trials of this world alone or will you follow the Savior we've been singing about who loves you and will lead you and take you to places you can't even imagine who will use you to change the world? Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. That's all kind of abstract though, right? A lot of us need some flesh and bone on that to, to help us flesh it out. Well, that's what this story does, this account in Luke chapter 9. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke 9, 57. And we're going to look at each of those ideas that Jesus broke down and have them fleshed out. The first one, he said, deny yourself. And as we look at this, we're going to go back a slide. The first idea, what, what it means to deny yourself is essentially to choose Jesus 
over your comfort. I don't hear any amens. This is not me. This isn't an amen kind of message. This, <laughs> the, the preparation for this message made me uncomfortable because what's it do? It, it, it shows areas where I need to grow. Maybe you'll feel that this morning yourself. Choose Jesus over your comfort wherever He leads. Wherever He leads. Look at this first guy. As they were walking along the road, do you remember where they were heading to? We said last week Jesus had set His mind resolutely to head for Jerusalem where He would be crucified for our sins. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Him, I will follow you wherever you go. Matthew tells us this man was a scribe. You ever said something like that? Maybe like at a retreat um, where God's been working on your heart or a Sunday morning after a service. I will go wherever you call me to go with you, Jesus. That's pretty bold. (laughs) See, this man had no idea where Jesus was headed. He was headed for Jerusalem towards a cross. Jesus replied to him, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What's he saying to this guy? He's saying, following me is not always easy. He's saying, don't expect it to be easy. If you really follow me, it's going to require you to give up some things that are comfortable. Like this guy, his Serta sleep number mattress. I mean, Jesus had just been rejected in a town in Samaria. They wouldn't let him stay there. That happened repeatedly to him and his disciples, and he was heading for a cross. So you read this stuff, and if you're like me, part of me is like, why would I even consider this? Why would I even consider choosing Jesus over my comfort? Because if I'm honest, I like my comfort a lot. Well, I want to give you a couple reasons why. We sang about a few of them. Jesus is a greater treasure than our comfort. He calls himself the Son of Man when he talks to this guy. The Son of Man brings out two main ideas. He became one of us to reach us. It also brings out the idea in Daniel 7 when it talks about the Son of Man. He will come in his glory on the clouds of heaven. He became one of us and yet he is a majestic, the majestic king of kings. He's a greater treasure. Bonhoeffer alluded to the verse earlier in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Got a buddy named Andrew Horbath who loves to go geocaching. You know, somebody will bury a sensor that sends up a satellite signal and you follow it with your device and you get there. Imagine if you got there, you're geocaching, and you found $3 million in this hole. But you don't want to take it out right now because there's some other people around that might try to rob it from you. You, you just cover that back up and you go home and, and uh, you, you sell your house, you sell your car, because you want to buy that property that's on. And your friends are like, what are you doing? It's just a, just a field. You're crazy. But you know inside what you're not crazy because there's $3 million in that hole. That's why he's saying the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is like times infinity. He's worth everything we have and more. He's a greater treasure. 
But also this, God's comfort is a deeper, longer-lasting comfort than anything this world can offer. You know that? Matthew 5, 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn. Sometimes when we follow Jesus, there will be mourning. Why is that? For they will be comforted. God's comfort. Psalm 23, 4, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 119.50, I'm going to keep going a little bit. My comfort in my suffering is this. Your promise preserves my life. Even the very promises God makes us are more valuable than any comfort this, this world can offer. Psalm 119.176, may your unfailing love be my comfort. His love that never stops. I'll go with you anywhere, Jesus, because your love doesn't fail. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. God's comfort is a deeper longer lasting comfort than anything this world can offer. We're not told how this man responded. All three of these guys, we don't know, which is kind of cool because it leads us to say, all right, we don't know how they responded. How will we respond? I want to look at a couple questions. Is there anything he has called me to do that I have not yet done because it would require me to give up some comfortable things? It could be my comfortable re- reputation. So I know if I spoke up more about my faith in Jesus, my status at work and with my friend circle would suddenly drop. It could be a comfortable sin that I go back to repeatedly. And Jesus is saying, lay that down. It could be a geographical location. It could be a thing that is keeping us from saying yes to where Jesus is calling us. Here's another way to ask the question. Is there anything he has called me to that I have said no because what he's calling me to looks too uncomfortable? At that point, we're looking at idols in our lives, right? And what I want to say is the question is not so much do I have any comfortable things in my life? The question is have I elevated any of those comfortable things above Jesus Christ? In America, sometimes we're insulated in some situations from discomfort. We may relate to Soren Kierkegaard. He wrote this. He said, I went into church and sat on the velvet pew. I watched as the sun came shining through the stained glass windows. The minister dressed in a velvet robe opened the golden gilded Bible, marked it with a silk bookmark and said, if any man will be my disciple, said Jesus, let him deny himself and take up his cross, sell what he has, give it to the poor and follow me. You see the, <laughs> the irony of what he's looking at. It leads us to say, how do we process this in a country that's relatively comfortable for the most part? And what I want to say is this, if he allows us to have comfortable things, God loves to give his children good gifts, The question is, will I steward them in a way, will I use them in a way that advances His kingdom? 
Francis Chan put it this way, if, if you live in a comfortable neighborhood, maybe God has called you there, but you need to ask the question, if you weren't there, would there be less of a kingdom impact because you were gone than when you were there? What kingdom impact are you making in your comfortable neighborhood? What kingdom impact am I making in mine? So I look at this, I, I think about ways that God calls us into uncomfortable situations. and I, I'll just share with you. We're, we're in the fourth or fifth year of church planting, the church next door. And my family believes that with all of our heart, this is what God has called us to. We love you guys. We love the salvations that we've seen. We love the way we see so many of you use your gifts here on Sunday, on Wednesdays, in the community. There is so much joy we take from this. But along the way in a church plant, there's also a lot of hard work. Jesus calls it planting for a reason. You know, there's a lot of plowing that sometimes comes before you plant that seed and way before you see that seed grow. And what I, what I just want to share with you is one of the ways that, that I face this issue with comfort is we got good church friends all over this town. And some of them are, are larger churches. And we got, I got great relationships with the pastors at those churches. And just recently, one of those pastors asked me, would, would you, your church like to, to merge with our church? And, uh, you know, and I got to admit, the, the human side of me looks at, hey, all of a sudden we, we get a lot more volunteers, you know, we add all those people together, and, you know, we wouldn't have to set up every Saturday morning, Aaron and the worship team, you, you guys... Um, there's so much that goes into meeting in a school. There's all these comfort thoughts. But then every time we pray about it, and this is what I just shared with this man after I spoke with our elders, spoke with my wife, is that uh, we love you guys. We love what you guys are doing, but we feel called to stay on this journey that God has us on. We, we feel like he's calling us to stay the course. Yes, sometimes it, it's slow and planting is a lot of work, but God's given us a a mission and a vision to be the church next door. Not just here on Sunday, but in our neighborhoods and in our missional communities. Keep pursuing that. I look at that in comparison with some of the decisions our brothers and sisters around the world make. like Brothers and sisters who get slaughtered on a beach and it feels relatively small. Maybe some of your comfort decisions feel that way too, but what Jesus said is, He who is faithful with little will be given much. Bottom line, don't always take the, the path of least resistance. Follow Jesus. That's what he's getting at here. The second thing that Jesus tells us here is to choose Jesus over your schedule. Whenever he leads. Whenever he leads. He, he said to another man, this one Jesus is proactive with him, he says... Follow me. Now this guy, I don't know what was going on in his life. We'll, we'll get a little glimpse, but he, he was just out in the crowd and you know, maybe he's just expecting to, to hear Jesus teach something cool and then go home and tell his family. To his surprise, he shows up and Jesus says, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now, when you first hear that, that sounds like a pretty normal request, right? Like, it sounds like he's saying, Lord, my father just died. Let me go take care of the arrangements, and then I'll come follow you. 
But really, that's most likely not what's going on here, okay? Because in their custom, you, you bury your, your loved one the day of, it's unlikely that he would be out in this crowd at all. If his father had actually died, he'd probably be at home taking care of that. It's, it's possible what he's saying to Jesus is, hey, my father's getting up there in years. Let me go stay with him until he dies, an indefinite period of time, and then I'll bury him, and then I'll come with you. Either way, Jesus said to him, okay, this is going to be hard for those of us who think Jesus is always sensitive. <laughs> Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I thought Jesus was sensitive. <laughs> What's going on here? Jesus knows. He knows there's an urgent job to be done. When he says proclaim the kingdom of God, he's telling this man, there are people out there whose eternities are at stake. We must go and share the message with them. For you and I, it's the gospel of good news that Jesus came to save them from their sins, to give them life. People's eternities are at stake. Main idea here, following Jesus is not always according to my schedule. It's not always according to your schedule. Jesus said, take up your cross daily, right? Daily. Many of us have grand ideas of serving Jesus someday, right? When college is done, when my debt is paid off, when I have my health back, when I'm married and settled down, when my business is established, when the kids are out of the house, when we're retired, on that missions trip this summer, on Sunday at church, on Wednesday evening at missional community. But what happens when Jesus shows up and says, I want you to serve me right now? Does Jesus have permission to interrupt our schedules? On Monday, at your office, in your home, on your street, those along-the-way moments. The question is not, is it sinful to have a schedule and a plan? I think God encourages that in our lives. The question is, does Jesus have permission to interrupt my schedule? I tell Carolyn, no matter who I'm meeting with, if my cell phone rings and it's her, I'm going to get it. You know, if I'm with you in a meeting and somebody else calls, it can wait. But if it's Carolyn, she's, she's got a 100% access policy on my cell phone. That's how it ought to be with Jesus. Does he have permission to interrupt my busy schedule for what he wants to do? Now some of us, if you're like me, you're wrestling with the question, why would I consider putting Jesus ahead of my own schedule? And I thought about it like this. How many of you watch Amazing Race? We love that show. You see so many cool things around the world. Not that many. I'll check it out. This past week they were in Namibia, one of Africa's beautiful countries, just filled with giraffes and elephants, lions, and they're out on safari. And I thought, man, who would you rather go through Namibia with? Someone has a map of the whole country and knows where all the, the different animals are, the different risks and everything, or someone who only knows what they see right where they're at right now. Who would you rather travel a dangerous country of Africa with? 
the guy with the map, right? Okay, so I think about God. I think about how he's got the whole map. And I'm not just talking location, I'm talking time. He knows all of history, all right? He's got the whole thing. It makes sense to let him interrupt our schedule. Besides that, Jesus followed his own father's schedule while he was here on this earth. Okay? And that's what led to you and I being saved, being able to be saved. Did you know that? John 5.19, Jesus said, The Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. He says, I'm on my Father's schedule. He was always talking about the hour of his death. Like there's this schedule. John 7.30, This time they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Later on in his ministry, when it got closer, he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour of his suffering and death. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I'm troubled here, but I know this is your will, Father. I'm going to carry it through. Galatians 4 says it this way, When the set time had fully come, God sent His Son born of a woman, born under the law. Listen, if Jesus followed His Father's schedule, does it make sense that you and I would do the same? We should follow in His footsteps. And you say, well, what does that look like? You know, God doesn't put appointments on my iPhone. (laughs) I don't wake up, get text messages from God like, hey, I want you here at such and such a time. Well, honestly... That's why he sent his spirit, okay, to lead us. And a lot of times it just looks like grabbing a hold of the opportunity that is in front of me right now. Not saying it's only that, but a lot of times that's what it comes down to. Galatians 6, 9, and 10. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. You got an opportunity in front of you to do good? Do it. Alright? Ephesians 5, 15, and 16. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Don't let those opportunities pass. You see it. Don't, don't procrastinate. Don't wait. Make the most of that moment. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. You're sitting with that friend, that co-worker who needs Jesus. You sense the conversation heading that direction. There's that battle, right? I'm going to step out there and share about Jesus or I'm going to keep it quiet. He says, make the most of every opportunity. That outsider. Sometimes it's with other believers. Some of you saw on Facebook this week, God put one of these appointments in my path. I did not see it coming. It's kind of funny because I've been working on uploading some old sermons. I've got, I'm like 12 behind on our website. And if you're like me, that's torture. Do you hate listening to yourself, your voice? Oh. Man. <laughs> so I'm going through that all day. And one of the old sermons was about when Jesus showed up at Nain. Just at the town gate. And this widow's got her boy coming out. And he's dead. And Jesus meets her just along the way. And he raises this boy to life. And along the way, ministry opportunity. I got tired of uploading. It was the end of the work day and I was like, I'm going to go for a run. So I go out for a run and I see someone in our neighborhood we know named John. 
And he waves at me. I wave at him. I got my headphones on and I'm cruising. And uh, I'm on the way back and, and John walks out in front of me on the street. John was out there just hauling rocks from one location in his yard to the other. And he walks out in front of me. And I take my headphones out and I say, how you doing, man? And one of the first things he said to me was, why do kids take their own lives? And so I just paused and I just listened. And he told me that his 14-year-old grandson in Colorado that morning had shot himself. And they had just got the call. He said, would you come in and pray with, with me and my wife? Our, our pastor's out of town. So we went in and lots of long hugs and, and tears and praying. And they got ready to, to fly up to Colorado. But before I left, he said something that I didn't even think about during the process. He said, you know what, I believe God sent you today. Our pastor out of town, God sent you here today. I didn't go out on my run thinking, how can I serve God on my run today? I was just like, I gotta get away from these sermons. <laughs> but God interrupted my schedule. Honestly, the cost to me was not that great. I had to wait a little longer for dinner. Big deal. <laughs> okay. It was well worth it. And it just leads me to ask us all the question, where does God want to interrupt our schedules and we may not know right now but when he does let's be sensitive all right let's not be so locked in on where we're going that we don't take advantage of it it's not sinful to have a schedule but can jesus interrupt it last one choose jesus over your family and your past for this one broke it down. It's like whoever, whatever, he calls you to leave behind. This is a hard one. Some of you guys have experienced this. Verse 61, Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Now I look at this guy and I relate to him. Okay, I love my family. <laughs> we find someone like Carolyn who you've been dreaming of, and, and then you have two boys together. You love them, all right? You, you treasure them. They're, they're so priceless to you. If you're not married, you can probably think of some people in your life like that. Maybe it's a parent, a, a sibling, a friend. We want Jesus to say, go ahead. <laughs> I'll wait. Don't we? I mean, if we're honest, don't we want Jesus to say that? But what he says is no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back as fit for service in the kingdom of God. I read that. Come on, Jesus, just a goodbye. (laughs) I think Jesus is Jesus, and what he senses in this man is more than just a desire to say goodbye. He senses a half-heartedness in this man. And he uses the picture of plowing to drive it home. And that day... They'd, they'd hook up a light little wooden plow to a big strong ox and the ox would pull the plow and the man would use one hand to guide the ox and the other hand to guide the plow. If you're always looking back, it's going to be really hard to make that plow go deep enough to avoid the rocks and you're going to get a crooked row in your field. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't plow straight rows if you're always looking back, if you're half-hearted. You've got to be single-minded. There's a guy in this town that we know and love that used to volunteer to take us down to Phoenix all the time when, when we needed a lift down there. 
It's the scariest ride that, that we've ever taken. This guy, I don't know if it's because he drives 17 every day or what, but the whole time we're in the back seat. This is how he's driving down 17. Did you hear about this? Yeah, yeah. How many of you want to ride with a guy like that on 17? It, <laughs> what? Get him a mirror for Christmas. Yeah. Freak this out. He got down there every time. Near the end of one of the trips, I finally got the courage to say, could you please look at the road? <laughs> All right. I don't want to drive with a guy like that. He's going to crash. That's what Jesus is saying about this guy in the plow. If you're not watching what's going on, you're going to get crooked rows. And he's saying to this man here, following Jesus requires us to keep your eyes locked on him and where he's going. You've got to keep focused, single-mindedly, wholeheartedly. And you can't follow him real well if you're always looking back, if you're half-hearted, if you're not willing to keep him the number one priority in your life. Family. I mean, family is a gift from God, right? He's saying, just keep me at the top. He says it this way in Luke 14. Verse 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. We've got to line this up next to other things that Jesus says, right? Does he really mean hate? Like we understand hate today in America? Because other places he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? He says, even love your enemies. Paul tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. What, so what is Jesus saying? What he's saying is that our love for Jesus ought to be so strong, so passionate that every other love in our life looks like hate in comparison. That's how high above everything else Jesus wants to be. Now hopefully, if you've got a family, hopefully they come along with you as you follow Jesus. That, that's God's goal. That's what he would like to see. You know, I think about a husband leading his wife and children. Husband and, father, uh, husband and wife leading their children. Let's, let's go on this journey of serving Jesus together. You know, in a situation like that, it would be wrong for a husband to get on his self-righteous horse or a wife to say, you know what, there's so much involved in this family, I'm just going to leave you all behind and, and go serve Jesus. That's not what he's saying, leave your nuclear family in a situation like that. Sometimes he says, love, he says love Jesus more than your own life as well. And Sometimes that means you make sacrifices for your family. right? Think about the unbelieving... Uh, spouse married to the believing spouse. That's a hard place for the believing spouse to be in. But without any other circumstances, you know what it says in 1 Corinthians 7, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Obviously, that's leaving any other situations aside. He's just, and the reason he says that is you don't know what kind of godly impact you can have in your home and their life by staying there. Stay there. Be faithful. Sometimes these sacrifices are big. Sometimes they're small. 
okay, this morning. Any of you have a crazy morning? Bob? <laughs> Bob did a wedding yesterday, and he's here at church today. That, <laughs> that's awesome. Our morning was a little bit crazy. I was wrapping up some service details at the kitchen table, and uh, then I hear in the other room, Carolyn says to Jaden, don't do that ever again. And so I come in and say, what happened? Jaden had her cell phone, which has her alarm on it. He's in there playing games, and every time this strange noise comes on, he just turns it off. (laughs) So poor Carolyn wakes up 40 minutes late. (laughs) Now I'm crunching for time, too, and I see her in a scramble, and there's a big part of me that wants to say, I gotta preach this morning, I gotta go, but (laughs) the kids needed breakfast, and so I just stuck around a little while, fixed some breakfast, and then took off. Not a big sacrifice, right? It's just, I want to be there for my wife. Sometimes a sacrifice where we love... Jesus more than ourselves means we serve our family, put them above ourselves. There are times when Jesus calls us to follow him and it literally leads us to a different location than our families, our extended family. I remember the meeting in 2001 in my parents' living room when we first knew God was calling us to the Heights Church in Arizona. Our parents are there, mine and Carolyn's, lots of cousins now. I'd be lying if I said we didn't miss him. I remember lots of tears in that circle, but you know what I remember my dad saying? You know, life on this earth is short. He said, worst case scenario, even if we don't see you for 80 years, we're going to have forever in heaven. You follow God where he's calling you to go. That meant so much to us as a young couple. Maybe you guys have, have had to make similar sacrifices. Again, sometimes I think I look at the sacrifices in my life and maybe you do in yours and we feel like they haven't been that great. They haven't been that, they haven't cost me that much yet. Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He says, Jesus says that every Christian has his own cross waiting for him. A cross destined and appointed by God. Each must endure his allotted share of suffering and rejection, but each has a different share. But it is the one and the same cross in every case. There are some times when Jesus calls us to follow him and our family just doesn't get it. They don't get it. What will you do if your family doesn't follow Jesus with you? What if they mock you for reading your Bible and praying? What if they roll their eyes at you when you leave for church? What if they leave you out of family events? What if they threaten not to pay for your college unless you lay this Jesus stuff aside? Will you lay him aside or will you continue to walk with him? I want to talk to you about Ashley. We've talked about her a little in the past. Ashley is part of one of our missional communities out in Dewey with George and Deb. They, they lead that missional community. Ashley's now married. Got some beautiful children out there walking with the Lord. Some of you may have been there for her baptism at the hot tub store a couple of years ago. I asked her to send me her story because she, what she went through in her life to me is a great example of, an, of a large sacrifice for Jesus. She said, My name is Ashley Kefover, formerly known as Bari Tariq Al-Masuri. 
was a refuge from northern Iraq, southern Turkey, in the region of Kurdistan. I came to America in 1990, 91, during the first desert, desert storm. She said, I was raised Islamic. After my 15th birthday, I came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior. I met a boy named Charlie who took me to a Billy Graham concert, and he also took me to Skyview Church in San Diego. I felt a need to give myself to the Lord Jesus Christ. A feeling of welcome, love, acceptance, no matter where I was from, was an amazing experience. About two years ago, my family and I finally came to an understanding of what is the difference between their religion and my relationship with Jesus Christ. The last thing my mother said to me was, Can you name your unborn son Ahmed or Muhammad, please? Ashley said, I replied back saying, Mom, I love you, but I will not name him that. In fact, Mom, your grandson's name will be Jacob Kefover. My mother says to me, Barry, do not call me. Do not check on any one of us. Do not try to call your siblings. We are done. I don't care. I just want you out. Ashley says, I felt lost, I felt hurt, I felt pain, or at least I should have. It was hurtful, but it went right into the Lord's hands. I replied back to my mom before she hung up, Mom, I love you. Only in the grace of God can I be saying what I'm about to say right now. I'm always here for you. And all of my brothers and sisters, my door is always open for all of you. Then she hung up. That's the last she talked to her mom that I know of. And what she said at the end here, my life hasn't been easy, but this is what I feel when people say, why Jesus? And the answer, she wrote this in bold capital letters with three exclamation points, home. I've come from the Middle East and traveled, but I can only belong in one home, and to me that home is Jesus. The sacrifice, but to her it was a sacrifice worth making because she found home. Sometimes it's not family. Sometimes it's our past life. Okay? Jesus says, follow me into the future. I've got plans for you. But we keep looking back at the past. Right? Sometimes it's our sins. The ways we failed God in the past. Sometimes we keep looking back at those and we have trouble believing that Jesus really forgave that. That Jesus really loves me and wants to use me. John Piper wrote about this idea in a message called How to Deal with the Guilt of Sexual Failure for the Glory of Christ and His Global Cause. Strong words in here. I'll warn you if there's children present. He said, the great tragedy is not mainly masturbation or fornication or acting like a peeping Tom on the internet. The tragedy is that Satan uses the guilt of these failures to strip you of every radical dream you ever had or might have and in its place give you a happy, safe, secure American life of superficial pleasures until you die in your lakeside rocking chair, wrinkled and useless, leaving a big fat inheritance to your middle-aged children to confirm them in their worldliness. That's the main tragedy. 
He's not minimizing any of those sins. He's saying the worst part of it is that we believe that because we failed God in the past, that He can't use us today. That is a tragedy. Jesus says, listen, stop looking back there. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. But here's what he goes on to say to this early church. He says, That is what some of you were. That's the past. That's your past identity. Now he's going to tell them their new identity, but you were washed. That means they were forgiven. You were sanctified. That means I'm changing your behavior. You were justified. You were declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Hebrews 8.12, God says, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. It's like Jesus comes to us and says, I'm not focused on all that stuff. Why are you? Follow me into the future. I've got plans and I want you to go with me. Sometimes it's not sin in the past. Sometimes it's worldly victories or worldly status that we keep looking back at, right? Stuff that we used to find our identity in. You know, sometimes when we look at the, the things Jesus calls, to give up, calls us to give up for Him, maybe it feels a little bit like God's playing, let's make a deal with us. Now you think about Noah. Okay, Noah, how about you trade your past reputation as a sane, normal person to build a gigantic boat on dry land in front of all your mocking neighbors. <laughs> Abraham, how about you trade your past stability, lots of property, and a peaceful, wealthy retirement and tell Sarah you're going to take a long, hard road trip to a place I'll show you later. <laughs> Why? Why would they even consider this? Hebrews 11 tells us all these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. And listen to this. This is referring back to Noah and Abraham and others. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. They were looking up and forward and said, Yes, God, I will go. I will go. Moses, I know you used to be a prince of the most powerful nation in the world, but now I want you to stand up for and suffer with slaves. Hebrews 11 says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Listen to this. Because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. His eyes were locked on God and his heavenly reward. Paul, how about you trade your past life as a powerful religious leader who persecutes others to go share my message and get persecuted yourself? 
Philippians 3, one thing I do, Paul writes, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ. Us, he looks at us and says, how about you trade your past control over your life and give me the steering wheel? We say, why? Why would I do that? Hebrews 12, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He was looking ahead, pleasing his father, restoring our relationship with him. He had those things in his mind. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Then the author says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now look at all those guys and gals in Hebrews 11. I know they're human. I know in the middle of it, there were times like you and I where they wondered, is it worth it? But I guarantee you, if you talk to them today, if you could take a short trip to God's side and talk to Paul and Moses and Abraham and Noah, was it worth it? They tell you, I can't believe I ever questioned. Yeah, it was worth it. Keep running. Keep following your Father. Colossians 3, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. We don't know how this last man responded to Jesus either. The question is, how will we respond? Does he have our undivided devotion? Or are there any people that have become more important to us than him? Is there anything in our past that has stolen our focus from him? As we wrap up, I want to share a word from Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, The time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Is he saying any of these things are evil in and of themselves? Wives, mourning, happiness, things of the world? No. He's just saying, do not get so engrossed in any of these that you take your eyes off of me. This world in its present form is passing away. In contrast, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's why it makes sense to choose Jesus over our comfort, to choose Him over our schedule, to choose Him over our family and our past. Bonhoeffer said this, and I'll close with this quote. The messengers of Jesus will be hated to the end of time. They will be blamed for all the division which rends cities and homes. Jesus and his disciples will be condemned on all sides for undermining family life and for leading the nation astray. They will be called crazy fanatics and disturbers of the peace. The disciples will be sorely tempted to desert their Lord. 
But the end is also near, and they must hold on and persevere until it comes. Why in the world would we persevere through this? See, Jesus and his kingdom really are the treasure hidden in the field. He's worth everything we have and so much more. Father, I come before you and just admit we need your help. I need your help. I, I read Jesus' words here. And Lord, uh, I think my first instinct is to, to try to fix this, to go fix the ways I fall short. But I know the, the, the first response to be to look to you, Jesus, and just let's say thank you, Jesus, for the lengths you went to. Let us be overwhelmed with your love, your sacrifice, the freedom that you've given us in Christ. Let that overwhelm us. And, and out of that place, we confess our shortcomings and say, Lord, I want to follow you because I have to. I, I want to follow you from my heart because I love you. And you're worth it. And I believe you're worth it. God, bring us to that place today. I thank you for Ashley's story. It's an inspiration. Lord, she chose you literally over the closest people in her life because she found you worth it. May you show us each one way this week, if not more, where, where we have opportunity to do that. Let's not see it as a burden. Show us an opportunity to put you above our comfort. Show us an opportunity to put you above our schedule. Show us an opportunity to choose you over someone or something in our past, Lord. We want to do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.